Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And our title this evening is A Better Ministry in a Better Sanctuary. A Better Ministry in a Better Sanctuary. The Jewish recipients of this letter have been having second thoughts about following Christ because they have they've been used to the grandeur and the wonder of the temple. The whole system was built round the priest, uh, the sanctuary, and the sacrifice. And all of those were tied together in God's covenant. And we've seen how the writer says, you have a better priest. You have better promises in a better covenant. And he's now going to say, you have a better sanctuary. You like the splendor of the old one? Well, you should see the new one. And your priest, who is better, is carrying out a much better ministry in this far superior sanctuary. Elaborate uh, architecture in churches tells us something, a little something, about God. It also tells us something about how that church thinks that we approach God. Uh, There's something majestic in the cathedrals of Europe which uh, fills us with a sense of the grandeur of God and our smallness as worshippers. The soaring vertical lines draw our eyes heavenwards. the, The vaulted ceilings feel so vast above us And we grasp something of the the God that is worshipped in this place. But the, the narrowing perspective of the aisles and the seats and the columns and the windows as they focus in on the item at the front tells us something else. They focus in, not on a pulpit, but on an altar. The priest standing at the altar, elevating the host, saying, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that focal point is the high point of the service. And the architecture tells us not just about God, but how we are to approach God. And so it was with the tabernacle and the temple for the Jews in even greater symbolic form. Their worship was highly visual There were ornate fabrics and clothing for the priests, and the high priest in particular. There was the tent, there were the bronze altar, there was the golden altar and lampstand. There was the uh, regal-looking high priest. Not that they ever got into it, but they got to see it. And they got to know what happened there. And they got to know what happened there was for them. And for those who, at this point in history, were scattered far from Jerusalem, getting to the temple in Jerusalem was perhaps a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Jews outside of Palestine. Herod had made it glorious, and they saw its majesty. There was the priest going in and out, the high priest acting on their behalf, and now they're gathering in a rented building with none of the majesty and none of the splendor, and there's an ordinary man standing at the front 
in ordinary clothes, talking to them. And all that had been bound together in that old covenant, in all the majesty that God had designed, they're wondering, have we made the right choice? They're missing the splendor. And the writer's main point here is that Jesus serves in a better sanctuary. His is a superior ministry in a superior sanctuary. And there, there's an awful lot in chapter 9. But it begins and ends with clear pictures being drawn uh, of the sanctuary and the work of the high priest. And so we're going to major on those. So first of all, a superior sanctuary. A superior sanctuary. And he's going to, he's used this theme already. And he's going to refer to it later and so we need to get this imagery in our minds. In chapter 4, 16, he spoke about coming before the throne of grace. It's a, a reference to God's throne in the most holy place. In chapter 6, 19, he said, We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. In chapter 8, in verse 2, he has spoken about our priest who has sat down on the throne at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by God. So you see, this isn't simply an ancient piece of architecture. This is a God-designed visual aid to help the people back then learn something and to help us learn something as well. You see, in chapter 8, verse 5, Moses was warned, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is God's very own design. But more than being God's own design, it's a replica. It's a copy, we're told. We see that in chapter 8, and verse 5. And then chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that is only a copy of the true one. There is a true sanctuary. And, and what it's teaching is, is that there is a place where God dwells. And that's, a, in a sense, that the, the most holy place. And the, the, the holy place in some ways is a picture of this world. And the building is, is one building, but there's a separation between the most holy place and the holy place. But that's not the way this world was designed. And as you look at Genesis, the scholars say the opening chapters of Genesis is actually sort of like a description of a temple being built where God is going to dwell with man. And there's the light. And there's the provision for man. And there's the God who is with man in the garden. And so the tabernacle is a little picture of the whole of creation. But it reminds us that there's a barrier that comes between God and man. Just as God had cast Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden. And he had put the cherubim there to say, You can't come back in to my most holy space. So the temple 
had on that curtain that divides the room where man could go and the room that was God's room, the most holy place, embroidered on that curtain were great cherubim, embroidered in gold, guarding as it it were the way back to God. See, this is what God is teaching us. This isn't just a, a God saying, well, we need a church for you to worship around, so here, we'll come up with this. This is about the way the universe is meant to be, God with man. It's about there being a barrier in the way, and not only a barrier in the way, but us being so sinful that we have to be out beyond even the fence that goes round it. And only certain ones could come close, and only one could come right in. So this is why this matters. And the writer in chapter 10 is going to say something astonishing. And then in chapter 12, there's going to be a reference that ties in with it again so that we can see the grandeur of what is ours. So, as we think of uh, the superior sanctuary, we want to think, first of all, of the earthly sanctuary and its limitations. The earthly sanctuary and its limitations. And the author paints a picture in the first five verses. He tells us about the holy place. And there in the holy place, there is the lampstand. And then on the other side, there is the table with the bread on it. Now also in the holy place, there is an altar of incense. But he ties it to the most holy place. Because what happened at the altar of incense was directly associated with the God who was in the most holy place. Um, And so he ties it with that. And so inside this two-roomed building, the first room that you come to, uh, the priests were allowed in it, and it had these three things. The great lampstand, God being the light of the world, the light that we need. And the table, God is the one who provides for what we need. And then the altar of incense, that saying God is the one who hears our prayers as they ascend heavenwards like incense. But then the writer takes us to the most important room, the second room. And he tells them what was in there, in the most holy place. It had incense, the altar of incense was associated with it. And then there was the Ark of the Covenant which was, in a sense, God's throne. And on it, there were two cherubim with their wings extended, looking down towards what was known as the atonement cover, or in some translations, a beautiful phrase, the mercy seat, uh, the place of covering. And then also in here were um, Aaron's rod, which had budded, and the Ten Commandments, and a jar of manna. God had designed this building and it was glorious. It reminded them of the God who had provided and the God who had entered into covenant and the God who gave forgiveness and salvation. And the writer doesn't denigrate it. He doesn't do it down and neither should we. It was God's glorious picture. And it spoke to them about a God who dwelt with his people and a God who made provision for his people to come to him to find forgiveness. And then in verses 6 to 10, he speaks about the work of the priests. And you see, in the first room, we read that they go into it regularly. 
They had to make sure the light and the lamp didn't go out. They had to replace the bread. They went in to offer incense to pray for the people. Then he speaks of a second room. And that second room, only the high priest goes in. And only once a year on the highest and holiest day. A day of spectacle. He removes his jeweled robes and he dresses in plain white garments. And he enters, most likely four times. He goes in with a censer and incense and he sets it down. He goes through this second curtain. And Leviticus 16 tells us he goes in and he sets this censer down to fill the place with smoke so that he will not die. He is not to gaze on God face to face as an equal. There's to be mystery there. Um, and then as he goes, comes out and he takes the blood of a bull and he takes it in and this is to atone for his own sins and he sprinkles some of it on the mercy seat the atonement cover on the throne of God. So that when God would look, as it were, at Aaron the high priest, he would see that Aaron's sins were paid for. And then Aaron would sprinkle some before the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would go out and he would lay his hands on the goat that was to be killed for the sins of the people. And then he would take the blood of that goat once it had been killed and he would take it in and he would sprinkle it for the sins of the people on the mercy seat. And then uh, implied as a fourth entry to remove that um, censer with its burning incense. All this in and out appearing and reappearing. It was high drama. It was a magnificent display to show that God or to show that man could come into God's presence that the sins of the people could be forgiven that they would have assurance their man had been in on their behalf and blood had been poured on the mercy seat before the throne of God that was what happened in the earthly sanctuary but it had limitations and that's what verses 6 to 10 are getting at and the author tells us about two limitations. He says there's limited access. Limited access. Verse 7 starts with but. But the high priest, he says. Um, sorry. Why can't I see? Yes, but only the high priest entered the most holy place. But only the high priest, only one man, only on one day, allowed into the presence of God. Then in verse 8, he says, The Holy Spirit was saying that the way isn't open yet. The way hasn't been made known. It's not made known while this setup is in place with the tabernacle and the temple and the curtain. So there's limited access. And then there's limited effectiveness. It has to be repeated each year. Verse 25, again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. You know, and that limited effectiveness in verse 9 we're told that it wasn't able to cleanse or clear the conscience of the worshiper. It's not saying they weren't forgiven. But that wonderful sense of a cleansed conscience couldn't be there 
because verse 10 tells us all of the washings and all of the blood, it was only done externally and it was the blood of bulls and goats. How's that a fair substitution for the sins of a human being made in the image of God against a most holy God? And so, for the thoughtful Israelite, although they could know a joy of forgiveness, they couldn't have the same depth of cleansed conscience that we need. Two great limitations, limited access, limited effectiveness. And verse 24 says, it was only a copy. Only a copy. What shocking words. Imagine having a painting on the wall of your house that you thought was a priceless original by Rembrandt or Picasso or Da Vinci, and you go to the Antiques Roadshow, and the guy looks at it, and he, he inspects it, and he holds it up to the light, maybe to an infrared light, and he goes, I'm sorry to tell you, it's only a copy. Your heart sinks. Well, this is only a copy. Oh, it's a beautiful copy. It's a God-designed copy, but it's only a copy. And now look at how verse 11 starts. Verse 11, when Christ came when Christ came. And now he starts to speak about the heavenly sanctuary and its perfection. So in this first point about the sanctuary, we've seen the earthly one and its limitations. Now the heavenly one and its perfection. And in verses 11 to 14, and then at the end, 23 to 25, the author picks up this theme that he had introduced in chapter 8 of our high priest, serves in the heavenly sanctuary, in the true tabernacle. Not the shadow, not the copy, but he's in the real thing. The shadow on earth was a picture of God's dwelling place, of heaven itself. The most holy place is a picture of the very throne room of God, where the angels sing in joy-filled ecstasy, holy, holy, holy. And where's our high priest? Is he in Jerusalem going into a splendid temple built by Herod? No, our high priest has gone into the true and glorious sanctuary in the highest heavens. He is in the true sanctuary, in the reality. And we're told two things here in verse 12. He is permanent access. He entered the most holy place, what does it say? Once for all. Once for all. No more backwards and forwards, in and out. And we'll come to this in a moment as we think about his ministry. No more repetition, but a permanent way that has been opened up. A way has been made known. It hadn't been made known. Now it has been made known by the one who said, I am the way. And that's why the curtain would be torn. That's why actually the temple, God and his providence, would allow it to be destroyed. It wasn't needed. There was no need for the tabernacle any longer with its reminder of the two rooms and the separation. That's why the curtain was torn. The way was now open. Permanent access. And he's going to take us on. We've just got to skip forward a little bit just to see the wonder of where this goes. He's not just going to say, your high priest gets to go in. 
What's he going to say in chapter 10? That we have access. We have access. It's not just limited in terms of time. Um, it's not just permanent in terms of time. It's also wider and unlimited in terms of the people that can go in. Not yet, but it's going that way. Um, uh, will be finally that way when Christ returns. It's permanent access, and there's permanent atonement. We're told, no longer the blood of bulls and goats, but by His own blood. He has etern obtained eternal redemption. What a spectacular phrase. Eternal redemption. Every year there was this sense when the high priest would go in and come out, and the people would go, yes, forgiveness. They would turn to each other and say, see you next year. And they would come back to see the high priest go in and act for them again, and to see. <laughs> when the high priest would come in uh, and see, or they, the high priest would go in and go out, and the, the, the people would see that their sins were forgiven, and they would have to come back the next year to be reminded of it again, to see it again. But this is permanent and eternal redemption. What a wonderful phrase. A death has happened and a price has been paid and the blood of the infinitely precious God the Son has been poured out on the atonement cover and no sin can overpower the value of Christ's blood. What an astonishing permanent atonement. The earthly sanctuary has limited effectiveness. The conscience couldn't be cleansed completely. But what does it say about this permanent atonement in verse 14? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And you know, that's what verses 15 to 22 are getting at. They talk about a will, uh, and they're, they're talking about the benefits that come in a will, the things that come to us that we receive when a will is enacted. It, it's speaking of the permanency of the good things that come to us. And they come to us. Why do they come in a will? Because a person has died. And the blessings come to us. And the blessings of forgiveness and cleansing of conscience come to us because they're secured by the death of the one who made the will or the covenant. Do you see how permanent this is? The permanent access, the permanent atonement that are ours. This is why they didn't need an ornate building any longer. They had something far better. That's why we don't need ornate buildings either. Somebody might say, well, but surely, you know, an ornate building helps us. We learn those lessons. Uh, we learn that God is awesome and majestic, and we see the ritual played out in front of us. Oh, but the reality has happened. These things would actually be a step back for them to go back to the temple, for us to, to have, in a sense, an ornate architecture that portrayed for us um, the need of sacrifice and, and, and so on, and all the ritual. The reality has arrived, and to go back to models and illustrations is an insult to the reality. 
like a man who sits and looks at a photograph of his wife. She's sitting here. And he says, you know what? This really reminds me of you. Oh, you're beautiful looking. I, I, I really have a sense of your closeness here. It's farcical. We need the reality. We need to, to, to experience the reality and to push to see in our minds and to grasp with our heads and our hearts the reality of what God has opened up for us, that we have access right into the very presence of God. And because we have a high priest who has done this, we don't need earthly priests. We don't need spectacular buildings. We need to see the unseen reality of our high priest having opened a way right into the most holy place. Not a building, not a cathedral, but into the very throne room of God, into His presence, a way opened for you. I mean, our great privilege isn't that we get to go into a magnificent building. Our great privilege is we get to go into the throne room of our Father in heaven. And we have a right to be there. A superior, a superior sanctuary. And while we have that imagery in our heads, I know our time is mostly gone, but while we have the imagery in our heads, I want us to see, secondly, a superior ministry. A superior ministry. Come with me to the Day of Atonement. Come with me to the Day of Atonement and stand outside the temple in one of the courtyards and watch as the high priest appears in view. He has already been in with the blood of the bull for his own sin. And now he sacrifices one of the goats, lays his hands on his head and he sacrifices one of the goats and he's standing there, he's appearing on your behalf and you watch him. And you see him. And then he takes that blood in. And now he's appearing in there on your behalf. And this is the great spectacle that these people are longing for. So they could see their sins being taken into, and the, the penalty for their sins having been paid, being taken before God to say, your sins are paid for. And the high priest disappears from sight. And they know that he's gone into the most holy place. And they wait and they wait, they know he's appearing in there for them. And they, they know he's praying for them. And he's sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice for them. But will he come out? Will it be accepted? And then the door opens. Or the curtain is drawn back. And he appears out. And you can imagine the crowd letting a great cheer and roar of delight and starting to sing psalms of praise about the God who has forgiven us. He has appeared again. And the, the, these Jewish believers would say, you see, this appearing out there with the sacrifice and in there with the blood and out here again, we knew everything was right. Now hold that in your head and hear what the author says. In verses 24 to 26, he talks 
or 28 rather, he talks about Jesus Christ's three appearings. He speaks about a first appearing. We're going to take, it's the, the second one that he mentions actually, verses 25 and 26. He says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The imagery here is of the high priest with the sacrifice. He's appeared on the steps at the temple with the sacrifice. He's laid his hands on it and he's taking the blood in. And the people could see the price has been paid for us. And he says, ah, but you have a new high priest. And he has appeared for you with one sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself to do away with sin once and for all. How's that for an appearing? You want to see an appearing? There is an appearing of such stupendous magnitude that no more sacrifice would be needed. It couldn't be clearer. And here is the the sense, the problem with the, the mass that represents the sacrifice of Christ, or represents the sacrifice of Christ. Christ's body and blood again being offered to God. It has been offered once for all of such tremendous worth. And you see what the writer's doing here. He's saying, you love that moment when the high priest stood on your behalf and he, he sacrificed the goat and he took the blood in. But now don't you see? He appeared once And he only needed to come once because his sacrifice would be of such great value. And it would take away, verse 27, the sins of many. It was the first appearing he mentions. And then in verse 24, he mentions another appearing. The second appearing. For Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Oh, you loved it when your high priest went in and he appeared in the room of the most holy place. You thought it was magnificent because he knew he was there for you. But what do you have now? You have God the Son, your high priest, and he has entered into the very presence of God himself in heaven and he is there for you. He's there for you. He's there to be the one with scarred hands and feet and side, whose presence says, I paid for their sin. Every single one of their sins is paid for, Father. The Father sees the scarred hands and feet and side. He says, yes, my son, it's all paid for. Our high priest is representing us there. But the high priest prayed. He prayed in there, out of sight, in that appearing in the most holy place that the the Jewish people loved. He's in there for us. But our high priest, where is he? He's in there for us, in the most holy place, in heaven itself. And he's interceding for us, for all the things that we need and all the struggles we have and all the stuff from the, the, the things that frustrate us in everyday life. We find grace to help in time of need for the wrestles with sin and guilt and shame and the cleansing we need, 
He is there interceding for you. He's interceding for you that you will be able to cope with the trials of this week and the 101 things that need to be done and the things that need to be put right and all the the hassles with leaking tanks and boilers and all the rest of it and people at work that are hassles and animals in the farm and all. He's interceding for you in the very presence of God. You've got a high priest who's appearing for you. For you. What a wonderful phrase. Not on one day. Not on one day, but forever and ever and every day of your life, he's there for you. Every day of your life, he's praying for you. What a high priest. What an appearing. See what he's doing? You liked it. You loved it when the high priest stood at the top of the steps with the goat that was to be sacrificed. You loved it when you knew he was in there in the most holy place praying for you. But there was a sacrifice. He appeared once and offered a sacrifice of such stupendous worth. And now he's appeared for you again in heaven. He's ascended into heaven. And then the third thing, the third appearing, verse 28. Oh, how they loved it. When the high priest came out, great cheer would go up. Everything was right. Everything was right. Salvation had come. Well, there was an appearing in the past at Calvary. And there's an appearing in the present where Christ is interceding for us now. But there will be a future appearing when our high priest will step out through the clouds of heaven and he will appear again. And he will bring salvation in its fullest sense. See what verse 28 says. He says, So Christ was sacrificed once for sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Oh, how they loved the moment when the high priest appeared at the top of the steps, glorious and radiant, fragrant with the very presence of God. But our high priest will appear again. And everything will be made new. He will come in the clouds of heaven, resplendent in majesty, fearsome in power, blazing in glory, accompanied by myriads of his angels, and the souls of just men, men made perfect, will accompany him. We will say, that's our high priest. Look at that appearing. And he will bring salvation in all its perfection. And the dead will rise with resurrection bodies, and the living will be clothed with immortality, and sin will be done away with at this appearing. You want an appearing? Which one do you want, he says to them? The one where the priest steps out of a curtain, or the one where the Son of God steps out on the clouds to make all things new? Tell me again, why would you go back to a man in a tent? When we have this high priest who has done, who has done, who is doing, and who will do all this for us. Let me finish with three applications. One, make sure that blood has been shed for you. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We need, we need a sacrifice. People will not get to heaven with a few acts of decency or a few prayers after death will not suffice. 
Man is destined to die once. And after that, the judgment, verse 27 says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, lest anyone be listening or watching who has not yet put their trust in Christ, you need that blood to be shed for you. Will you come to him and put your trust in him? Second application. Enjoy the blessing of a cleansed conscience. Enjoy the blessing of a cleansed conscience. Sometimes our past haunts us. Sometimes it's not just the things that we have done, but it's also the things done to us that we take on a guilt for. All that washed clean. We have a cleansed conscience. And yet sometimes we can find ourselves revisiting old sin and confessing and confessing as we're trying to scrub ourselves clean, thinking almost, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. No, no, it's not about me, not about you. And some can be so focused on their past and its failings, their feelings, the feelings of others, that they don't get on and live and serve God now. But how much more then we read, Will the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Enjoy, my fellow Christian, the beauty of a cleansed conscience. He has paid. He has paid. It's an eternal redemption. And then thirdly, wait with eagerness for Christ's return. Wait with eagerness for Christ's return. Verse 28. Verse 28 says, He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those who are waiting for him. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. And this word calls his people to be waiting with an eager expectation, longing for him to come back, waiting for that moment when we'll see him coming in the clouds of heaven. Are we looking forward with such a hope for the one who has gone into the heavenly realms, into the heavenly sanctuary, to come back in the same way that he went, what the angels said to the disciples in the book of Acts. He will come back in the same way you saw him go. And then we will dwell with him forever. And we, where will we be? We will be in the most holy place. Not in a tent, but in the renewed universe where there will be no barrier between us and God, where everything will be the way it was designed to be and the whole earth will be the temple and it will be filled with his glory and we will enjoy him forever and ever. Are we looking forward to it? Amen. Let's stand if we're able as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we look at the ancient details of a tent in a wilderness and we think, what's this got to do with us? And yet we see that that tent was a picture of the way being closed, of the universe as it were being divided, as it were artificially, where man was separated from his creator. And we thank you that we are not relegated to no access, nor are we relegated to a limited access 
for one of our people to, to be in your presence, but that our high priest, whom we are joined to, and we are part of him, he has gone in and he is in the most holy place, in your presence forever, and we will see him come back to do something that the Jewish high priest could never do, to say to all the people, won't you come in? Won't you come in and see God in all his glory? Oh, thank you, Lord, for such a high priest who has offered such a sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that we would, we would long for him to return. That great appearing that's spoken of here and that we would live with the enjoyment of a cleansed conscience and that we would marvel at the price that has been paid and that we would look for that day when everything will be made new and the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.